It's so good to be back again with you here in Grange Baptist this morning. I'd just like to reinforce our evening gospel service this evening at 7pm. Do endeavour to come along if at all possible because this evening I'll be sharing a word of testimony. I feel as though it wouldn't be right to share a word of testimony as somebody who's doing their placement here. It would give a chance for some of you to get to know me a little bit better than you already have. Uh, but I do endeavour to come along just to hear that word of testimony and also a gospel presentation afterward. Uh, so do endeavour to come along tonight at 7pm. Uh, but we're going to continue worshipping God this morning uh, through the preaching of his word. And if you would turn with me in your Bible to Second Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel chapter 15. And we'll commence reading at verse number 13. The word of God says this. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was afar off. If you'll jump down to verse number 30 with me. Same chapter, verse number 30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up, weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Uzziah the archite came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. Unto him David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city, and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou be for me, then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And amen. And we know God's word does not return to him void. This morning, I would like to show you three things in this particular passage. First of all, I would like to show you the person. Secondly, I would like to show you the prayer. And thirdly, the providence. The person, the prayer, and the providence. This story that we've just read, it's really a story about a godly king, David, backed into a deadly corner. And what it does, it teaches us a very liberating truth about prayer. This story is one of the greatest tragedies in all of Holy Scripture. David's son, Absalom, has exploited his father's love and has conspired against him. He's stolen the, pe- the hearts of the people of Israel. And now the rebellion has grown so strong that David is left with no other choice 
but to flee the city of Jerusalem in hopes to live to fight another day. And as David retreats, weeping as he goes, barefoot, covered in shame, it actually only gets much, much worse. Because as David flees, he learns that his most prized advisor, Ahithophel, has joined Absalom in his rebellion. And yet in this most desperate of moments, when David could have crumbled under self-pity, he could have wallowed in his circumstances, we see something unique about David. We see something unique about this person. The person, King David. You see, David's first automatic reflex is Godward. It says in Second Samuel chapter 15 and verse 31, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. We can see here from this verse alone that prayer to King David was a first response, not a last resort. Prayer was a first response, not a last resort. And we see that all over the life of King David, let's be honest. Because in Psalm 109 and verse 4, it says simply this, or David says this of himself, I am a man of prayer. I am a man of prayer. In the original languages in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, I am a man of. What it says is simply this, I am prayer. I am prayer. Now you and I both know that you really need the definitive article in there. You need, you need those first words, I am a man of, to make that sentence make sense. But what David says, what he means here, whatever he says, I am prayer, what he is saying is that his life is so open before God, he's so in communion with God, he's saying, I am a constant prayer. I am a walking prayer Meeting. That's what David is saying. He is so in communion with God throughout his life, he is saying, I am in constant prayer. David said in a psalm that he prayed three times daily. Yet in another psalm, he said that he praised God seven times a day. There's a difference there. David said that he prayed three times daily, but yet in Psalm 119, verse 164, he says this, Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. He prayed three times a day, but he praised God seven times a day. You can see this man was a man of prayer. You can see something unique about this person. David not only prayed three times a day, but he praised God seven times a day. You know, I have little books, little books by a man called S.D. Gordon. I have a whole range of them. They're called Quiet Talks. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're called, uh, some of them are Quiet Talks on Prayer, Quiet Talks on Soul Winning, Quiet Talks on such things like that. But he does have one that is called Quiet Talks on Prayer. And in the book, S.D. Gordon writes this You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I'll say that again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. It's a very important truth. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that little phrase. We quote it all the time. 
in prayer meetings or in our prayers. In Luke chapter 11 verse 1. You hear it all the time. Lord, teach us to pray. We say it all the time in prayer meetings. Lord, teach us to pray. But what we often don't quote is the latter part of the sentence. Luke chapter 11 verse 1. It says this. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. As John taught his disciples. Disciples. You know what that tells me this morning, friends? It tells me that both these teachers, the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist, had disciples who on their own did not know how to pray. They did not know how to pray. Or perhaps they wanted to grow in their understanding and their practice of prayer. Perhaps they were looking for a specific direction. Perhaps they wanted to know exactly what to say. Either way, prayer was not something that came naturally to the disciples. Prayer was not something that came naturally to them. It wasn't like eating or drinking or sleeping. Prayer, like any language, it has to be learned. It has to be learned. Prayer is something that we have to learn to do in our lives as we walk with God day by day. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Paul in this verse notes that believers shouldn't be anxious about anything. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. That doesn't mean that a Christian should show complete lack of concern. It doesn't mean that a Christian should be careless in life. Instead, it means a Christian should not be overly fearful, paranoid, or uneasy. Why not? Why not? Because believers, as believers, you and I can speak directly to God. Because as believers, you and I can speak to the creator of the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. As believers, you and I can talk to the one who has all power and authority on this planet. The one who is in total control in every situation all of the time. You and I can talk to such a being. Travelling to the nearest galaxy would take you 749 million years. So I've been told. So I've been told. Travelling to the end of the known universe would take you 225 trillion years. So I've been told. But to come into the presence of the creator of all of it, all you have to do as a child of God is simply say, Father. Father. And that's exactly what David does here. His first response is to pray. Prayer is not a last resort, it's a first response. You see here the person. I want to show you secondly, the prayer. The prayer that he prays in verse 31. David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. There's a bit that could be said about this prayer. We could say a bit about it. But this morning I only want to bring one thing to your attention. I want you to note, most importantly this morning, that the prayer was short. His prayer was short. As you can see, it wasn't a long prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, I don't like calling it that actually. 
Uh, I don't think it is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that we find in Matthew 6, that's the disciples' prayer. That's our prayer, you and me. That's how we pray. It's not how the Lord prays, it's how we pray. Whenever he says, you know, forgive us our trespasses, the Lord doesn't pray such a prayer. But in Matthew 6, in our English language, the Lord's Prayer that we see in Matthew 6, it's a mere 50 words. 50 words. You can write it out in four sentences. Four sentences. I have to be honest with you, friend, this morning. I cannot remember the last time in a prayer meeting I prayed a prayer of 50 words. I cannot remember the last time in a prayer meeting I prayed a prayer of 50 words. This is a prayer that's straight from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I think even of Joshua. Joshua in Joshua chapter 10, whenever he prayed very simply for the moon to stand still over Gibeon, or for the, for the sun to stand still over Gibeon, and the moon to stand still over the valley of Ajalon, he prays a very simple short prayer. And what does God say about his prayer? In Joshua chapter 10 and verse 4, God says this, There was no day like it before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. Joshua prayed a short, simple prayer for the sun and the moon to stand still. And the Bible says there was no day like it before or since when God hearkened unto the voice of a man. Short prayer. Even Elijah Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel, that great contest between the true prophet, the prophet of God, and the false prophets of Baal. Whenever Elijah prayed for fire to fall from heaven, it's a mere 13 Hebrew words. 13 Hebrew words. And fire fell from heaven. Fire fell from heaven. Sometimes I think, and I mean no disrespect when I say this, I say this with all the love that is in me. It's not my intention this morning to offend anybody. But I think sometimes whenever we go to prayer meetings, we're like those false prophets of Baal. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26, that they called on their false god from morning until noon. Now don't get me wrong, dear friend. There's nothing wrong with praying to God from morning till noon. Not wrong. But I think sometimes we feel as though we have to pray long prayers for our prayers to be powerful. When exactly, that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. A powerful prayer doesn't have to be a long, difficult prayer. It doesn't have to be a prayer filled with fancy theological terms. Nowhere in Holy Scripture does God command you and I to pray eloquently. He only commands us to pray earnestly earnestly prayer that's powerful can be a simple declaration made in faith a simple plea to God made in faith you know the Bible records Elijah one of the greatest Old Testament prophets that he prayed an earnest prayer to God an earnest prayer in the Bible in James chapter 5 and verse 17 it says this Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. But really, what did that prayer look like? That prayer that James records as an earnest prayer, what did that prayer look like? Well, commentaries and scholars 
I believe that the prayer he was referring to is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. It says this, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. You see here that this was not, he wasn't in conversation with the king. He says, as the Lord God liveth. You see, he wasn't conscious of the king's presence. He was conscious of God's presence. And what does he say? There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. A simple sentence said in faith. All Elijah did was was pray in faith that there would not be rain in Israel. And God, in James chapter 1, the verse uh, chapter 5 verse 17 records it as an earnest prayer. He honoured Elijah's prayer and there was no rain for three and a half years. That simple sentence was an earnest prayer. You know actually the following verse in James chapter 5 and verse 18. It tells us this. That Elijah prayed again and the heaven gave rain. Elijah prayed again and the heaven gave rain. But James doesn't record the second prayer as the earnest prayer. The word earnest is not used. Earnest is used for the first one, that simple sentence made in faith. But the second prayer that Elijah prays for it to rain again, James doesn't record that as an earnest prayer. It's just a prayer. Now, I don't mean that any respectful, disrespectfully. It's just a prayer. It's just a prayer. Not an earnest prayer. Just a prayer. And what did that prayer look like? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 42 to 44, it says this. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there riseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. My friend, if you were to ask me which one was the earnest prayer, humanly speaking, I would tell you it's the second one. If I had to show you both prayers, here's Elijah who simply says one sentence in faith, and here's Elijah again, who puts his head between his knees and bows down to the ground eight times. Which one is the earnest prayer? I would have to say it's this one. The one where he bows down eight times with his head between his knees? Certainly it's this one. And yet James records this one as the earnest prayer and this one is just a prayer. A simple sentence said in faith. A simple sentence said in faith. Again, dear friend, this morning, do not misunderstand me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with playing long prayers at the appropriate time or assuming a certain posture in prayer. Jesus himself was known to go away all night to pray and to rise before the sun early in the morning to pray. There's a place for long prayers. But what I'm trying to say this morning is this. A long prayer isn't necessarily a powerful prayer. And you can see that with David's prayer. You can see that with David's prayer. I have to tell you this morning, friend, something very simply. This might come to you as a shock. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. And that is why I pray. I believe in the power of God. And that is why I pray.
Prayer is a most gracious plan, whereby God links himself with man. Then should his own not more often say to one another, let us pray. I wonder, dear friend, as you sit here this morning, do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Or do you come to a prayer meeting to tick a box? Do you wait until there's a lull in the prayer meeting and think, I'll have to fill this space with a few words? And then you begin to rhyme off. I wonder, do you actually believe in the power of prayer? I've showed you the person this morning. I've showed you the prayer. And finally, I want you to see the providence. The person, the prayer, and the providence. This prayer that David prays is, almost humanly speaking, it's impossible to be fulfilled. It is highly unlikely, if not impossible, humanly speaking, to ever come to pass. Why? Because the Bible says in Second Samuel chapter 16 and verse 23 that there was none wiser, wiser than Ahithophel. Chapter 16 verse 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. It was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. You know, one might as well pray for the sun and the moon to stand still than to pray for Ahithophel's wise counsel to turn to foolishness. Humanly speaking, it'd probably be easier for the sun and moon to stand still. Yet in this very moment, David prays for that exact thing. And that's what we should do in prayer. In those exact moments, whenever the outcome seems impossible to be fulfilled, whenever the outcome seems impossible to come to pass, it's those times that you and I should call it to God and pray. Prayer is not an exercise. Prayer is not an exercise of saying out loud what seems to be already naturally occurring, if you know what I mean. Prayer is not naming ahead of time what seems to be already be the natural course of action. Prayer is not making an educated guess to God out loud. Brian Cruz is at the Irish Baptist College tomorrow. Somebody needs to lift him at 3 o'clock. Or he's getting lifted at 3 o'clock and he's going to come down to Grange tomorrow night. And so somebody prays. Lord, I pray that Brian gets lifted at 3 o'clock and comes to Grange tomorrow night. <clears throat> you've already prayed what seems to be the already naturally course of events now I'm not saying don't do that I would value your prayers whenever I'm up at Irish Baptist College but what you've did is you've guessed you've made an educated guess of what seems to be already naturally occurring prayer is not just what that is prayer humanly speaking is for the turning of the tide Prayer is for those times whenever you need to change the course of history. Prayer is for those desperate and dire moments when you're backed into a corner and humanly speaking the desired outcome seems painfully impossible to come to pass and therefore you pray. Therefore you need God to intervene. And providence, dear friend, providence is tied to prayer more than you and I realize. The Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 2, just listen. Ye have not, because ye ask not. Providence is tied to prayer more than you and I realize. Why ye have not, because ye ask not. Cause and effect do not carry the day. God does. And so David prays. And not only does David pray, but he actually acts in faith. He prays, 
And then he acts in faith. No sooner has David prayed than Uzziah the archite, who is loyal to David, meets him with his coat torn, dirt in his head, mourning. David has prayed for Ahithophel's counsel to turn sour, and now David acts in faith. He sends Uzziah to feign loyalty to Absalom, to serve as a spy, a double agent, and perhaps even defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And so Uzziah goes. And just like Ahithophel, he's received into Absalom's inner circle. And one of the first orders of business is whether or not to chase down David and overtake him while he's still retreating. This is the first order of business. And Ahithophel speaks up. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 2. He tells them what, what they should do. Pursue David tonight while he is weary and discouraged. Pursue David tonight. While he is worried, weary and discouraged. And as per normal, this is considered wise counsel. This great sage has spoken. It's a done deal. Everybody thinks that's exactly what they should do. Second Samuel chapter 17 and verse 4. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. What he has said really spells the end of King David. Were it not for Uzziah the architect. Who then speaks up. Second Samuel chapter 17 and verse 7. It says this. And Uzziah said unto Absalom. The counsel that Ahithophel hath given at this time. Is not. Is not good at this time. The counsel that Ahithophel has given. Is not good at this time. Uzziah who's feigned. Loyalty to Absalom, who's now part of the inner circle, begins to speak up. And throughout this chapter, chapter 17, he begins to paint this image of King David as not this weak and discouraged man, but this man who is a mighty, enraged expert in warfare. A man who was molded on the battlefield. A man who is an expert tactician in war. A man who defeated giants. A man who led rebellion from caves. A man who became king because it was God's will. Uzziah begins to paint this image of King David. And what does the Bible say? Well, it says this. The counsel of Uzziah the archite is better, better than the counsel of Ahithophel. My friends, let's be honest. That seems impossible. That seems impossible. What a stunning turn of events. What an impossibility apart from God. Only God can turn the hearts of men like this. But why? Well, it says in Second Samuel chapter 17 and verse 14. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Nobody could see this coming. Even David in the time of prayer and yet he prayed, and he acted in faith, and Uzziah's words carried the day. And really after this, dear friend, if you read on, this is really the start of the defeat of Absalom. Dominoes begin to fall, and he's defeated. It means the end of Absalom, and really the rescue of King David, brought back in into the place of royalty, of serving the people as their king. David prayed, and then he acted in faith. I wonder, dear friend, do you and I do that? Do you and I pray and then act in faith? Or do we pray and we still worry about it? We pray and then we think, I don't know whether God will do that or not. Or do we act in faith? 
You know, one of the most beautiful things in Psalm 91 is this, just before I close. Psalm 91 and verse 2, the word of God says this. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and him will I trust. You know, the Hebrew word for refuge refers to a small shelter that's used in, in storms and in times of danger. It's a little bunker like the Jews have in their back garden in Israel that they run to in small scale attacks. It's a place that you can flee to in times of hardship and danger. Figuratively, when you say the Lord is your refuge, you're declaring that he's your, he's your protection in a small scale attack. He's my refuge and my fortress. Well, the fortress is different because our fortress refers to a, a stronghold, like a castle, a place of defense and protection against the large-scale attacks. It provides safety from an incoming enemy and allows you to withstand the assault. So in Psalm 91 verse 2, whenever you say, God is my refuge and my fortress, what you're saying is, he's my protection in the small-scale attack and he's my protection in the large-scale attack as well. Come to God in both the small and the big. Come to God in both the small and the big. Dear friend, and please remember this. There is no thing too big for God's power or no thing too small for God's heart. There is nothing too big for God's power or too small for God's heart. Friend, whatever you might be going through, you can rest in the assurance that God is your refuge and your fortress, your protection in both the big and the small. Nothing's too big for God's power or too small for God's heart. If it matters to you, it matters to God. I've shown you this morning three things that we find in this passage. The person, the prayer, and the providence. And I hope that teaches us a thing or two about prayer in and of itself. But just as I close this morning, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story that I often tell whenever I preach on prayer. I'm a body Baptist. I'm sick of hearing this story. I remember reading a story one time about a, a little rural community that was experiencing a great drought. And so the minister in the town called together a prayer meeting in the town hall. And everybody was there. Everybody in the town came to this prayer meeting in the town hall to pray for rain. And as the minister made his way from the back and walked up to the, to the front of the podium in the town hall. He looked down, and he seen in the front row this little girl, and poised beside her, ready for use, was a bright pink umbrella. You see, the minister began to speak to everybody present, and he said, all of us have come here tonight to pray for rain. But the little girl came expecting God to answer. I wonder how often do you and I go to prayer meetings and we pray for rain, but do we really expect God to answer? I trust that's not the case. I trust we remember that our prayers are powerful because of the one we pray to. Next time you're at a prayer meeting, bring your umbrella with you. Amen.